This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Comparative advantage is a classic concept in economics, but does it really apply to international trade? Cato adjunct scholar Don Boudreau says, of course it does. As part of Cato's Defending Globalization series, Boudreau tackles the ways in which our comparative advantage can be short-circuited with short-sighted trade and immigration policy. A refrain that we hear from people who are let's just say, fans of domestic enterprise and reshoring uh, things that are currently done overseas or in other countries is let's bring it all home. We shouldn't depend on other countries to do things for us that we easily can do here in the United States. Yes, that is a refrain we often hear. It is a refrain that reflects economic misunderstanding. And the economic misunderstanding that it most reflects is a failure to grasp the very important principle of comparative advantage. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do that something as opposed to doing something else, earning income from doing that something else, and then using that income to purchase uh, those other things from individuals who can produce those things at a lower cost than you. You know, the, a typical example of comparative advantage. But it's one that works is, you know, suppose LeBron James can type faster than uh, anybody else in, in the world. Well, it would be pretty silly for LeBron James to quit his job as an NBA basketball star in order to work as a typist in a typing pool. He, whatever he needs typed, his emails or his legal documents, he earns a lot of income playing basketball. That's the task at which he has a comparative advantage. And he spends some of that income purchasing typing output from other people. The general point of comparative advantage is that technical ability does not translate contrary to instinct of most people. Technical ability does not translate into economic efficiency. Economists look at costs. And if it costs me more to perform a task to produce something that I want, then it costs you to perform that task. I and made better off if I specialize in doing what I do best, in this case, teaching economics, I earn income and I pay you to produce the thing that you can produce at a lower cost than I can, and I buy it, I buy it from you. We have evidence of the efficiency of, of the reality of comparative advantage all around us every day. Every one of us on a daily basis, without even thinking about it, we are dependent upon hundreds of millions, perhaps in some cases billions of strangers for the goods and services that make our daily lives in modern America what they are. The people who bake the bread for our breakfast and uh, uh, refine the fuel for our automobiles, who supply the electricity that's making this podcast possible, on and on and on and on and on. There are people who specialists spread out all over the globe, and they are spread out to the extent that economies are allowed to operate according to market principles. They are spread out and divided and specialized according to their comparative advantages. Uh, there's a reason why I'm not a professional golfer or a professional basketball player. It's because I don't have a comparative advantage at doing those things. But I have a comparative advantage at teaching economics. I may not be the I may not be very good at it in any absolute sense, but I'm better at teaching economics than I am at anything else. And so I specialize in it. That's the that's the basic story. And the occasion for this discussion, of course, is the new series 
that Scott Lincecome started for the Cato Institute, the Defending Globalization Series. And one of the foundations of the economic case for free trade and globalization is the principle of comparative advantage. One thing that you note in uh, your essay, which uh, you can get to at uh, Cato.org, is that we don't know ex ante who has what comparative advantages. And that is, of, it's of critical importance that those things be discovered. Yes, yes. And they can only be discovered through market competition. I may think that I have a comparative advantage at being a NFL quarterback or at being a master chef or at being a CEO of a financial firm. I may think that, but the only way to test it is if I actually go in and try to earn a living doing it. And I'm going to be competing against other people who think they have a comparative advantage of doing those things. And then the people who wind up producing the most value per unit of time or per unit of, of dollar invested are the ones who will survive in those tasks. And those will be the people who are discovered by the competitive market process and having a comparative advantage at, at doing those things. Um, and it's important also to note, as I do in my essay, that comparative advantages change all the time. One of the, you know, there are many, many misunderstandings about the case for free trade. One of the misunderstandings about the case for free trade is that the claim is made that, oh, well, you free trade economists, you assume that comparative advantage is static. You assume that the comparative advantage that exists today is the one that's going to last forever. But, you know, we can have government come in and change comparative advantage for the better. And in fact, economists, of course, recognize this. Economists from early on recognize the fact that comparative advantage changes all the time. I teach at a university. I teach at an institution devoted to allowing, encouraging young men and women to change their comparative advantages. They come in here as 18-year-olds and they have a comparative advantage at working at supermarkets or working as delivery uh, uh, agents for, for Amazon. And they come out with comparative advantages at working as accountants or nurses or school teachers. We're always seeking to change our comparative advantage. The fact that when economists explain uh, with simple examples the operation of comparative advantage, we assume for purposes of our explanation that the comparative advantages are static. That doesn't mean that we believe that in the real world that they're static. Of course, they're not. Of course, they're always changing. But at any moment in time, at any moment in time, each individual has a comparative advantage at doing a particular task, meaning a comparative disadvantage at doing many, many other tasks. And this is important to point out as well. To have a comparative advantage is to have a comparative at least one comparative disadvantage. You cannot have a comparative advantage without having a comparative disadvantage. And so in, in the context of trade, of course, we talk rather loosely about countries trading with each other. America trades with China, China trades with Germany, Germany trades with Paraguay. And that's okay as long as we understand, which we often fail to do, that countries don't trade. Countries are not sentient creatures. What we mean when we say that, say, the U.S. trades with China is that certain flesh and blood people in the geographic area called the United States trade with other certain flesh and blood people located in the geographic area today called China. And so it's people trading. And comparative advantage ultimately resides at the level of individual producers, individual workers, and individual firms organized to produce things. It doesn't exist 
at the state level, at, at the country level. Now, when a country has in it a large enough number of workers or firms that happen to have a comparative advantage at doing some tasks, say producing apples or producing steel, we can say rather loosely that that country has a that country has a comparative advantage at producing steel. But we must recognize that it's really the workers and the firms in that country that have a comparative advantage of producing steel. And if they want to change that comparative advantage, they can do so if they wish. How do subsidies alter the calculation? Because you know, many countries, as the U.S. has done in steel and other industrial goods, countries have decided to subsidize the production of something domestically for whatever reason, you know, parochial interests or maybe, a, you know, a, a genuine belief that the United States needs for some particular reason to produce more steel or uh, China or Japan needs to produce more steel. What do we not see? when subsidies are introduced in the equation? Well, a couple of things to say. Number one, we have to recognize the possibility that subsidies, as well as tariff protection, can indeed cause producers in a country to obtain a comparative advantage that they did not previously have. If the U.S. government, for example, pours enough money into U.S. steel let's not use steel. Steel has been subsidized forever and it still seems to always need further subsidies and protection. Uh, so the US pumps a lot of, I'll just make an industry up, pumps a lot of, of subsidies into the aluminum industry. Uh, it's possible that all the extra production that Americans engage in in producing aluminum will give Americans a comparative advantage now at producing aluminum that they didn't have before. That's possible. There's no guarantee, by the way, that that new comparative advantage will serve America better than its previous comparative advantage, but it's possible. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that oftentimes subsidies are used to mask or get around comparative advantages. So let's assume for the moment that the Brazilians have a comparative advantage over Americans at producing a particular type of steel. In a regime of free trade, we Americans will purchase from the Brazilians that kind of steel rather than make it ourselves. So we save resources by doing that. Those resources we're able to use to produce other things that would otherwise be too costly for us to produce. We're made economically better off by that. So, but, but let's say the Americans then, the American government subsidizes the U.S. steel industry to allow it to uh, uh, sell that kind of steel at a lower price than it could. Well, what's going on in this case is that the U.S. producers of that kind of steel, they're able to sell that kind of steel not because they can produce it at a lower cost than the Brazilian competitors can. They can't. They're, by, by assumption here, American producers of that kind of steel produce it at a higher cost. But the only reason they find it profitable to engage in the production of that kind of steel uh, is because the American government's paying them to produce that kind of steel. And so for the steel producers, that's a profitable deal. For uh, American taxpayers, it's a bad deal. Our, our government is taking our money in order to entice and incite fellow Americans, a handful of fellow Americans, to use resources wastefully by producing this kind of steel that we, by assumption here, don't have a comparative advantage of producing, we're, we're wasting resources. Of course, politicians will point 
to the increased output of steel and they'll applaud and they'll pat themselves in their back and say, look at all the workers now employed producing that kind of steel. Look at the extra output of that kind of steel. Look at the extra sales of that kind of steel to our fellow Americans. And they'll think themselves to be great and glorious for having achieved this outcome. But what, what, so that's because that's easy to see. You can see the extra output from, from of, of that kind of steel from steel mills in Ohio and Pennsylvania and California and Alabama. What you don't see is the output that is no longer produced and that, 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 but that would have been produced had these subsidies not been paid. And of course, this can go on. Again, it may be that over time, these subsidies wind up giving Americans a comparative advantage of producing those kinds of steel. But even if it doesn't, the only reason we wind up producing and we American steel producers wind up producing that kind of steel is not because they have a comparative advantage of doing it, but because they're being paid by the government to basically override the economic signals. And in the process, of, as this overriding takes place, we Americans as taxpayers and as consumers are being made worse off. You say override, it's, it's short-circuiting. Right, short circuit. Yeah. It really yeah. is. It really is, and it's not just industrial production, uh, industrial facilities, and and expertise in the production that could have been devoted elsewhere. It's also the humans who have been enticed away from otherwise remunerative employment, yes. doing something productive. All of these things are, are things that are unseen by champions of protectionism. It is. Quite astonishing to me, honestly, at how naive most protectionists, even those who are considered to be fairly sophisticated, the ones who write for think tanks. I'm not just talking about you know politicians making speeches uh, on the stump or on the floor of, of some legislative assembly. I'm talking about people who have PhDs or JDs and they write you know position papers for various think tanks. Uh, they, they, they make their pronouncements on MSNBC and Fox News. It's astonishing how utterly naive many of these people are. They focus only on the industry or the jobs that are of concern to them. And then they come to the utterly, utterly uh, banal conclusion that if you pump enough money into subsidizing those jobs or you erect enough erect tariff barriers that are high enough to prevent imports from competing with them, then, whoa, lo and behold, we get more jobs of that sort and we get more output of that sort. This is not news. Of course, no one denies that this is possible. But but their analysis always stops there. And and we economists come along saying something that I think is it shouldn't be remarkable at all. Uh, and I'm, I'm frankly tired of, uh, not just me, every decent <laughs> economist is frankly tired of repeating it, but we repeat it because it, it seems never to sink in. We say, well, what about, what about the jobs that are lost? The resources that you pump into that protected industry, into that subsidized industry, they're coming from somewhere. And you know where they're coming from? They're coming from industries at which we do have a comparative advantage at doing. And so the first thing protection does, first thing that subsidies do is to shift resources, and including workers, from industries at which we have a comparative advantage. So those resources are being used to produce the largest increment of value into industries in which we have a comparative disadvantage, at least during the current period. And so all these resources that are, uh, that are shifted from the industries that lose resources because they're not protected and they're not subsidized into the industries that get these resources as a result of being protected and subsidized. These resources move from those industries in which we, we are relatively efficient 
into industries in which we're relatively inefficient. And somehow, protectionists think this makes us richer. And they, again, they think that only because they only look at the protected industry. And they're blind to the lost jobs, the lost output that inevitably, uh, inescapably happen because of their protectionist measures. Don Boudreaux's essay on comparative advantage appears in Cato's new Defending Globalization series at Cato.org. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening. <laughs>